Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor uh, at The Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Julia Alexander. Uh, Julia is the director of strategy at Paired Analytics, where she advises clients on the tectonic shifts in tech, media, and telecom. Uh, she's also a contributor to Puck, and previously was at TMT and The, and the Verge. Um, I have been reading her stuff at Puck and been enjoying it greatly, uh, and she's a good follow on Twitter if you're into analytics streaming anal data if you want tv data or whatever whatever we're calling visual medium now uh follow her it's what at loudmouth julia is that right at loudmouth yes. julia yeah so uh make sure to make sure to follow her uh today we are talking there's been so much there's been so much uh news in the world of streaming that i wanted to to get julia on to talk about what is happening uh with some of these companies uh, you know obviously there's the background on warner brothers news but that is all part and parcel of a big shift in strategy as overseen by their new uh, honcho, right, Julia? Yeah, so a couple of months ago, a little bit longer than that now, of course, Jason Kalar, who's the former CEO of Warner Media, left a bunch of his former um, executive team, got laid off as new ownership came in, which was David Zaslav, who is the, well, now the head honcho of, yeah, Warner Brothers Discovery, but used to be the head honcho of Just Discovery. Um, and with the new management change comes a tectonic shift in strategy where we're moving away from we're putting everything into hbo max and streaming and hoping that that is what will pay off in five to ten years and now we're going back a little bit to well what about theaters what about cable and then of course what about streaming and we're kind of seeing that divvy up a little bit yeah because i it's it's interesting how discovery purchased hbo right i mean they they took on 58 billion dollars in debt or something like some some enormous some just tragically enormous amount of money that they have they have taken out in debt to buy the company but that is that has changed what they are looking at in terms of spending and what they're willing essentially willing to lose money on right yeah i mean i think you've got someone in the form of david zaslav who is relatively shrewd in general and is kind of known for not being a massive spender if we look at the buildup of the discovery team just on an employee front, it's very, very lean versus if you look at kind of what Warner Media is, especially going back to the um, uh, Turner days, like you effectively have a company that has a lot of bloat in it that, that might need a little bit of cutting, which is a really negative way to talk about redundancies in labor and, and layoff, which is always, always extremely not bad. Um, but you have someone who's coming in and is going, we have to cut all the spending. We have to figure out how to get our costs down. We have to figure out what type of content to invest in that really works for us dollar per dollar, and what type of content not to invest in. And I think the reason you're hearing a lot more about this right now for a company like Warner Brothers Discovery is, you know, not only do they have a $518 million loss on their streaming product, not only do they have a $3.41 billion loss in general on their quarter for the revenue, um, but you also have them saying that our projected EBITDA growth, like this, the earnings, the, the health of this company is going to be missed by $2 billion. And our, our forecast for what's going to happen over the next half of the year, potentially into the next year, and uh, is going to be really poor. And so all of a sudden, you've got a company who's losing the support of its of, of, of Wall Street and of its investors and shareholders really, really fast. The only way to keep them there is to kind of make an appeal to them as opposed to making an appeal to the creative community, right? Jason Clark could come in and say, we're going to do a bunch of stuff on HBO Max. We're going to green light a $70 million background movie that's going to go to HBO Max. We're going to do something there. We're going to do a Scoob movie or whatever it might be. And you've got Zaslav coming in and saying, we've got to pay off this debt. We have to figure out a way to really ensure to our shareholders that this company is going to be a profitable company, that their revenue is, is, a, is a top concern for us. And so where the brunt of that um, responsibility comes on is, is the streaming service. It's them saying, okay, well, we are not necessarily just going to put stuff there and hope that this becomes a profitable business in 2024. We're going to take some pretty drastic cost measuring, cut co cost cutting measurements uh, to make sure that we're both growing our streaming service, but also ensuring that our business is going to grow on top and bottom line at the way that we need it to. Yeah, I mean, I like it's I, I'm fascinated. I've always been fascinated by HBO because it is in a weird way, the perfect entertainment company. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you if you go there's there was a great oral history. Um, I'm looking for the title of the book right now. Tinderbox. Uh, there was a great oral history of, of HBO a book called Tinderbox. Everyone should check it out if you're interested in HBO. But one thing that that got at that I had I had always kind of understood but never really fully grasped is that HBO is not only a creative powerhouse. Obviously, Sopranos, The Wire, whatever. You know, we all we all 
grew up with. You know, it's not TV, it's HBO. Um, but it was also an enormous moneymaker. I mean, just an enormously profitable uh, center of revenue for Time Warner, Time Warner AOL, you know, go, going in and out of uh, the various companies that it owned. Um, and and trying to figure out how to manage that in the streaming age is Zaslov's hardest priority, right? Right. And so I think what we should be abundantly clear about is that, you know, while every team is going to be hit by these um, cost cutting measures, HBO is probably the most protected. It's the most insulated. Casey Bloys, who's the head of HBO and HBO Max and his team are the most protected team in Hollywood. So HBO is not necessarily going to be hit in the way that I think a lot of consumers, a lot of fans are looking at. I think where you really are going to see a, a, a number of cuts is on the unscripted programming, which to an extent makes sense, right? If we think about what happened with, with the earnings day, there was a slide that went viral on Twitter and it was like effectively an advertising slide. And it said HBO Max skews male, Discovery Plus skews female, Discovery Plus skews as a strong retention driver, HBO because of its, uh, HBO Max because of its fandoms and because of the HBO programming is a customer acquisition tool. Like that's what it is. And uh, I feel personally that this became a huge out of, this got taken way out of context especially by people who work in media and can ask their own companies for advertising decks that show <laughs> how the websites, their audiences lean. Um, but what that meant to say was like, why would we spend money on a show like whatever it might be cooking with Selena or whatever it is when we have the food network? Like it doesn't make any sense for us to have this huge billion of billions upon billions of dollars of investment in a programming sector that is not, that is redundant. But HBO will do, and especially with um, Casey Boys, and what will happen with HBO Max, he'll take the scripted side and he'll figure out like, okay, we want to keep our flag means death. We want to keep hacks. We want to keep these types of shows that feel like they can still thrive in an HBO environment. But we're going to really cut down on all this other bloated stuff that is either not seeing super high engagement or it's just something that we don't necessarily need because we're doing it better on the unscripted cable side um, specifically. Yeah. And, and moving a lot of that stuff over to Discovery, Plus is is a smart way to do that. But also, I mean, I this this brings us to a kind of secondary strategy question, which is I am deeply skeptical of the idea of a single HBO Max discovery app um, for reasons that have less to do with economics or anything like that and more to do with how customers see themselves. Um, You know, an HBO Max person does not necessarily see themselves as a flipper flop person. And like I like I don't I don't I don't mean I there are some who enjoy both my I. I have been known to indulge in a, the occasional HGTV show, um, but like it just it does feel like two different worlds. But that's that's that seems like it's definitely happening, right? It's absolutely going to happen. I think on so on the negative side, what they don't want to happen is that you, as an HBO Max subscriber who loves whatever it might be DC loves HBO, like the reason you're going into this thing, all of a sudden feels really bloated. It starts to feel a lot like Netflix where you open up Netflix and you're like, none of this feels like quality programming. I don't really know what I want to watch. None of this seems appealing to me. And so you kind of futz around for a little bit and then go somewhere else. Like you go to Hulu or you go somewhere else entirely. That would be the worst thing that could happen was that, yeah, somebody who signs up specifically for HBO is now getting um, placement on their homepage, which is the most, you know, it's the prime real estate and streaming. This gets placement on the homepage for, yeah, Fixer Upper or um, some Food Channel show or TLC show, whatever it might be. The positive side that can happen, this is what they're betting on, is that in order to build a streaming service at the scale that they want to build it to, it means it has to be a four quadrant service. It has to appeal to men and women above 25 and below 25. That requires two different types of programming, and not two different, it requires a bunch of different types of programming, but you really need, again, like your high acquisition drivers and your high retention drivers. So what they're hoping for is you get a family of four or five, let's just play into dumb gender stereotypes for a second. It's just because that's what's coming to my head. Dad really loves to watch The Sopranos. Mom really loves to watch uh, um, House Fixer Up or whatever kid loves, Batman, whatever it might be. All of a sudden, the re- the value perception of that $15 a month skyrockets. When they increase the price of the streaming service, which they will do, it means that they're not going to churn as many customers. And so they can continue acquiring customers and keeping them at a relatively low rate. The cost of acquiring those customers goes down and all of a sudden they can start to potentially reach profit margins that they are telling the street that they're going to reach. That's the hopeful anticipation that they will feel like it's an added value that you're getting what you paid for and then some. The concern again is that if you don't manage that correctly, if it doesn't feel curated, if you are not 
um, being extremely purposeful in how you're recommending content, which is not just algorithmically, it's also contextually. It is like the way that people engage with a service, the way that humans want to watch stuff. You know, a, a great thing I always point out to clients is like, you cannot recommend, I always use The Handmaid's Tale. You cannot recommend another depressing show after The Handmaid's Tale. People don't want to watch it. Like they don't, they've, they've watched their hour. They're thoroughly depressed. They're looking at CNN. <laughs> They're not going to watch something else. That's that. that what's like, what I would recommend if I'm Hulu is something like Rick and Morty because they'll, they'll stay for a comedy. They got to have a palate cleanser. But the, the algorithms are not trained to do that. They're trained to be like, you like this show, therefore you might like this show. I always say if you like Criminal Minds, you'll probably like Mindhunter. Like if that's how kind of how they're going to they're going to do it. And so I think if they don't take proper contextual recommendation on the HBO Max side, once they bring in the discovery products, you do get that bloated feeling. And if that tarnishes the brand, which is all HBO has going for it. I mean, all, it's, it's a great network, but it's built on this reputation right. of creating great stuff in the way that A24 has built a reputation for itself amongst LA and New York film kids as making like, you know, great movies, film after film after film for the most part. If that's tarnished, it's really hard to change the value perception of that $15. And it's really hard to keep someone if you increase your price. Just from a pure economic standpoint, why does it make more sense to combine? So I, I'll just use I'll just use my household as an example. I subscribe to HBO Max and Discovery Plus. Uh, like I, I, I subscribe to both, uh, and I would assume that if you combine those into one service, the total price is going to end up being less. Like for me, right? <laughs> but for most people, that's probably not the case. For most people, probably end up being more. But what? Why does it make more sense to? to combine them into one service or to say combine Hulu, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus into a single service as opposed to offering uh, the option to s subscribe to all three at a discounted rate or whatever. This is I mean, the big debate, right? This is like, and it really is actually to your point, like the Disney versus kind of what Warner Brothers is doing debate. With Disney, the reason that they like the idea of having the three different streaming services is that uh, based on what I can understand, one, it, it leads to the lowest churn rate in the industry. The average churn rate, uh, so people who are kind of canceling, the average churn rate is about 5%. Netflix used to be the lowest for years and years and years, even when they were seeing um, issues with their programming and other stuff, they still have the lowest churn rate. Now the lowest churn rate is the Disney bundle. It sits at like 2.2%. Mm -hmm. And I think if you think about how they market the Disney bundle, it is like you're paying for two services, and you're gonna get one free. That's kind of how they do it. You're gonna pay for Hulu and Disney, you get ESPN Plus kind of thrown in. Um, and so for them, they use that plus the data collection from all those three different services from three different consumer bases, three different audience bases that they can then use for the flywheel, which uh, which is their whole strategy. Their whole thing is like, we would like Disney Plus to sell Disney Park tickets. We would love ESPN Plus to help um, uh, sell additional merchandise that we may sell or whatever whatever it is, or go to games that we can figure out a way that keeps the interest in the NFL healthy that then reflects better with us and our, whatever it might be. That is the whole point behind the streaming thing. So they need to kind of have those different customer segments to understand what they're doing and it keeps retention rates really high. And so they, and they continue to uh, juice their subscriber numbers a little bit, which is maybe not the best way to say it, but they get to count, you know, one subscriber is three mm -hmm. right across the board. They get to say who has gone up sure. this much, even if it hasn't, we don't know. So that's really works for them. I think if you're Discovery Plus and, oh, and the last thing I'll say on that is both Hulu and uh, Disney Plus, especially Hulu now with the FX kind of stuff thrown in, uh, are equally uh, big selling points to, to customers. So for them, it's like we can generate a stronger um, average revenue per user at ARPU if we have these kind of three bundle, the, the bundle rather with the st three streaming services. If you're discovering your HBO Max, Discovery Plus is a much harder product to scale. For as broad as it is, it's actually a relatively niche audience who's going to be signing up. That audience also tends to be older. They tend to still be in cable. They're not falling off the cable cliff and cord cutting as fast as others. So Discovery Plus is kind of the service that's doing well for the operational cost that it is, but it's not going to be huge. But if you bring that into HBO Max, you get to solve um, HBO Max's churn issues or potentially solve HBO Max's churn issues. And you help to create a four quadrant service without the necessary additional investment that HBO Max would need. Again, we come back to like they made Cooking with Selena. They made all these shows because they didn't have the unscripted stuff that Discovery does have. So to bring it in, you create a really wholesome streaming service that has the ability to scale that the other one really doesn't. And so it just makes better sense for them versus Disney has two really in-demand streaming services. ESPN Plus is growing. Actually, I was just told by a friend over there that they should have a pretty strong earnings on the ESPN Plus side. 
um, in, a, in a couple hours as, as we're recording this, you know, that's kind of growing at the rate that they wanted to. And that's really based on the bundle option. That is like the ability to, to bring the, give that people for free. So it's just a different, you look at your services and you kind of debate what your overarching goal is, whether it's data collection for other stuff, whether it is to create a truly scalable global product, like whatever it might be, you, there's a different approach to each one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I like, again, I, uh, my, my, my big concern for HBO Max, which is my favorite, you know, service, is mostly that people will be like, "Well, I don't want to subscribe to HBO Max. I'm not a, yeah, I'm not a discovery person. That's not what I do." Uh, which I think is very possible. Uh, all right, so I want to I want to bring up. Uh, speaking of HBO Max, let's bring it back to uh, the big news from last week. All right, which yeah. was the the shelving of Batgirl. Uh, Zaslav says we're going to take a tax write down on this instead of finishing the FX work or putting it in theaters. But explain explain the business sense. For for uh, folks who who cannot understand why it's better to just not publish a thing or not not show people a thing that they have already made and paid for than to show it to them. Yeah, yeah. So, and there's a lot of healthy debate about this. So the key word here is amortization. And so there is this ability, there's this brief window because new management is coming in, they get this brief window legally and through, from an accounting perspective where they can write down a bunch of projects from the former company uh, that will then effectively give them a tax break. So when they look at a film like Batgirl, and, this, and then this is where all the asterisks come in, right? Like, okay, how bad was this movie that they're not going to release it? Um, and for them, you know, a $70 million movie that let's say with marketing and some reshoots and whatever it might be becomes an $80, $90 million movie, that has one major goal if it's going to HBO Max. It is one goal and it is to acquire customers. It is like you need to bring in 2 million subscribers in order for us to really see the revenue potential. I mean, this is a whole debate, Sonny, which I know you know about like the actual versus sure. streaming in for general, sure. right? This ongoing thing. So the, the asterisks are, is how bad was this movie that you're not going to release it? How close to being done was it that, that like you're not just going to bring it across the finish line? What does this do to the relationship with talent like that alone? And and and, and you saw that the directors of those movies post a screenshot from like Kevin Feige who emailed them and was like, we, we sounds like hell over there. Sorry about that. Like, we still love you. Hope to work with you more. You know, what does that do that might be irreparable that does harm your bottom line down the um, in the future? All of these are questions that I would argue previous management would have said, like, we don't know what's going to happen in this movie, but let's take a shot on it, which I also feel is very HBO in general. Like, we're HBO, if we think about shows that they've greenlit or, you know, even through Game of Thrones, we're kind of like, we don't know if this is going to be a thing that's going to do well, but like, let's try it. Like, let's see what we can do with it. We believe in, in the talent. Zaslav is the other side of it. Zaslav is someone who's like, we don't think this movie is going to be very successful for us. Also, we then have to continue paying month after month to have that movie on our platform. This is like how you last week there were um, reports that a bunch of titles were being removed from HBO Max. It's because they have to pay for it. They have to pay month after month for it to mm-hmm. have those titles on it, even from HBO and from Warner. Like they still have to pay for it. And so you have Zaslav, who's effectively modeling this in Excel with his team. And he's going, okay, based on what we think about this movie and its subscribers, based on all this other stuff that's going on, do we think this movie is going to be profitable for us, even break even? And my my guess is that the numbers were so poor and Zaslav is so focused on this kind of cord cutting, uh, cord cutting, excuse me, on this cost cutting situation that he was like, it's actually better to take advantage of this one opportunity we have to at least generate some meaningful tax break that, that brings, you know, that helps us with our bottom line, which is cutting debt, um, then try to release it. I think the issue you know, for Zaslav, who spent months, months when the deal was first announced between Discovery and, e- and Warner Media, um, of him going out to town with talent saying, we're going to theaters, we're going back to theaters, we really want the best talent. Like, you've come and done that. And then the first, you know, five, four or five months that he's in, he's overseeing this company, all of a sudden he's making these decisions that aren't necessarily talent friendly in the eyes of the press and the eyes of talent. And so that's a really difficult situation to be in, because on the one hand, from a business sense, it might be more economical. It probably is more economical to say, like, we don't think this movie is going to do super well. So we're just going to take this uh, this opportunistic tax write down, this one time offer that we have because of the legality of how mergers work. And we're going to be able to kind of move forward and focus on projects that, you know, a direct to streaming movie is going to be a $10 million movie. This is where Netflix's bread and butter is. It's a $10 million movie that generates really strong um, engagement with audiences or whatever it might be or strong retention, whatever it might be. Um, instead of doing the $70 million movie, if we're making a $70 million movie, that movie better be good enough to go to theaters. But he's alienated, I think, some talent in the process. And if I'm Casey Bloys, 
That's my big concern. Mm -hmm. That is like, if we don't play the talent game at the cost that sometimes talent needs, and I'm not saying that Batgirl should have been a $70 million movie. If you got a movie with Michael Keaton as Batman, like you're not gonna play, it's a weird thing to happen. But I think if you're Casey Bloys, you're hyper aware of two things. One, your HBO and your, your reputation is built on being home for talent and supportive to talent and putting out really great stuff. And two, you're hyper aware that if you don't do it, there's a great team at Apple who has all the money in the world who will do it yeah. happily. Um, and so I think that's kind of the situation where the economical sense, it does make sense. Like that, it, it's really unfair, but um, it does make sense in the short term. And this is where you see Disney kind of going like, we're going to take the short term hit because we need to focus on the long term. Whether what this did long term economically to the, the potential for Zaslav and talent going forward, you know, who knows? Yeah, I want to I want to pull back. I, I, I want to pull back to one thing you mentioned briefly, because I think it's worth hitting on. And I haven't seen a lot of people talk about it. You know, there, there was some news last week that uh, some HBO original series like um, uh, Vinyl. Uh, you know, the 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 pilot of which was directed by Martin Scorsese was pulled off of HBO Max, um, a bunch of other titles. Uh, uh, and, and people were like, oh, my God, these things are disappearing. You know, uh, where where will I be able to watch an American pickle uh, in the future? And and, you know, uh, I, as somebody as as somebody who is a collector of physical media, I did get to say I told you so. You know, if you love something, you need to own it. But like but but there is there is an actual uh, economic reason for doing this. And and I don't think people understand the licensing fees that HBO Max and Warner Brothers were paying for these these movies and these uh, television shows. Yeah, I mean, that's the big the the it's the big exclusivity play, right? Is like we're going to take all these short term hits because we're not licensing it out. We're not making that money. And instead, what they're saying is we're going to have to pay that licensing money. Think of it um, when when Project Popcorn happened with Jason Clark and, and Warner Media and HBO Max. And they said, we're going to take 17 movies and release them in theaters on HBO Max the same day. It wasn't like they said, cool, we're going to go to theaters and this is free for us on the HBO Max front. HBO had to pay Warner Brothers to have access or HBO Max had to pay Warner Brothers to have access to the first run of those films. It was an expensive bet, like even internally. I mean, yes, on the one hand, you're saying like money is changing and from yep. here to here, but each different department has their own profit and loss that they oversee. They have their own budget. So it's, a, it's an actual expense. If you're not seeing, and this is where like, I, I mean, I talk about this on Twitter a lot, like what we're effectively talking about with streaming, which we didn't do as much in broadcast because the economic structure was so different, mainly because of advertising and how, and how that affected a bunch of TV shows and films and pay one windows. What you're seeing with streaming is the dollar per dollar content valuation of a title is going to become the number one question for any title that's going to be on a service. How long it runs, whether they pick it up, whether they give it to another service, this will be the number one question. It's just like, okay, well, how much money is this title generating us? Um, And that comes down to two things. Is it keeping our subscribers retained 30 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 days after after we have it? Um, Is it bringing in new subscribers? If it's not accomplishing those goals, what is its value? Now, you say that to people who love, and including myself, people who love to watch movies and TV shows and want access to everything. And that's a really daunting thing to say, which is like, if it's not valuable, it could just disappear from streaming. I mean, it's still available on VOD. They'll still be available to buy. Um, But... The idea is like if they're not being engaged with and they're sitting on the shelf, they are actually not just collecting dust. They're they're paying for this to collect dust and they could be and they could give it out elsewhere. They could say like our audience isn't into American Pickle, but Netflix might be into it and they'll pay for this and then we make money off of them. What I think you'll see happen and what should have happened with Netflix a long time ago and it just didn't. Is they should they have these titles that don't do any, don't do super well. Netflix has removed some of its originals. It's like usually uh, international, but they've done this too. They'll remove some from their platform. They should launch free advertisement supported platforms and take some of these titles and partner with a Roku, partner with a, a Google, whoever it is, who have the fast channels with a Pluto and say like, we're going to launch the Netflix free channel, the HBO free channel. Like We're going to launch mm-hmm. this thing. And it's going to be titles that are not doing well on our thing, but someone who's not paying for content, the value perception of watching something is totally different. So they might say, hey, I'll watch American Pickle if it's on my Roku or whatever it is, like, I'll, I'll watch it. And they can generate ad revenue through that. And they're no longer in charge of the distribution. Now it's like Roku and now it's Pluto who are in charge of the distribution. They're the ones who are have it, who have it set up. So they're generating that incremental income. They're not giving it away to competitors. And they're and they're kind of within this um, very, very quickly building ecosystem of, of fast, that's what we call it, uh, of customers who are watching a lot of free ad supported television. 
And I think we'll see a lot more of that come to play. But yeah, don't, I would not be surprised if you hear about more movies and TV shows leaving HBO Max, leaving Hulu, leaving others, because they do have to pay month after month, year after year to have those on the service, even if it's from their own studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, and this is also a there. there's a question here also of paying for the talent, too, because I mean, this is this is I mean, this is where residuals come from. This is where all that stuff, you know, so if you. If you want to have that sort of thing on HBO Max, you have to pay somebody to 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 have it. Um, I, I the your your point about uh, what is the individual value of this individual movie to the service is a very key one, and I want to look at uh, two recent films from Netflix. Right, so Netflix famously releases. Uh, the Gray Man a couple weeks ago, and it you know gets a gets a cursory seven day run in theaters, but it but it is really just going to Netflix, and you know they talked about oh yeah two hundred million people watch it whatever eighty five million hours whatever whatever the number was, um, but the movie again movie costs two hundred million dollars to make right uh it uh costs probably another they probably spent another 30 40 million dollars on advertising um so in in the first 10 days if it's watched by you know for 185 million hours that's good that's good but it's like the fifth best ever it's not like amazing then you have a movie like uh, uh what purple hearts purple hearts so purple hearts nobody's talking about purple hearts we don't have think pieces about purple hearts there's not you know n- memes about purple hearts maybe somewhere i don't know on instagram i don't know but uh purple hearts movie costs about 10 million dollars let's say i don't know i don't know for sure but let, let's say in the in the 10 to 15 million dollar range they spend nothing on advertising for it it just shows up on the 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 home screen um and it does 151 million hours right so you have you have a movie that costs let's say just for the sake of argument let's say it costs 10 percent as much to make um, but it still generates 80% of the eyeballs. Why is Netflix spending $200 million on a movie that is only getting them another, you know, 20% bump in eyeballs? I don't I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me as a business proposition. Yeah, I mean, Netflix's, Netflix's uh, blockbuster strategy in general doesn't make much sense to me either. I, what I will say is I had talked to a friend at Netflix worked within film and we were talking about titles like purple hearts and, and uh kissing booth and, and movies like that and the, the christmas movies and they were like that's our bread and butter that those movies overperform in ways you would not imagine like they just are extremely good at doing what they do and they cost a tenth uh you know a twentieth of what we're doing on the big blockbuster stuff and the way that i kind of think about it i don't know if this is accurate but the way i think about it is if anyone who's listening has worked in a newsroom you sometimes get newer employees who come in and they're writing blog posts or they're, they're reblogging stuff they're kind of just putting stuff up on the site it has to go up on the site and in a in an ad kind of supported media environment you're doing it because the strong the more people you have coming to your website better ads you can get like it's, it's kind of how it works and also by doing that it allows the features writers to kind of go off and chase a pulitzer they get to go off and be like, I'm going to spend six months doing this thing because they know that the feature, once it comes out, may generate a lot of hits or whatever you want, like a lot of people reading it. But it's not going to be the day to day thing that keeps the website going, that keeps people employed. And I think about this a lot with Netflix's movie strategy, where they need the five to ten million dollar movie that does the insane numbers that it does that travels on TikTok. And this is where Purple Heart seems to really be thriving is like on TikTok. It's not a Twitter yep. movie. It's definitely a TikTok movie. People are watching it and they're creating additional content, which is earned media for the for the company. Um, and so you have them and, and they do what they do. They keep people subscribed. They keep people watching that Netflix gets to say, like, we have this usage. We feel pretty good. It's it's bringing in some new subscribers. That's awesome. Also, though, we want to be a home for talents. So we do these movies to pay Martin Scorsese to do The Irishman, you know, mm-hmm. a movie that is phenomenal, but also no other studio is going to do it. Like they're like, we're just we can't afford to do it. We're not going to do this. And Netflix goes, OK, well, we, we have all these these movies no one's talking about on Twitter, or, but they're but they're being heavily watched. And so we can do this movie. You know, we're going to we need a huge franchise. We know that we kind of want to get into theatrical. We know that we want to get into gaming. We know that we want big franchises to compete with Disney and, H- and Warner Brothers. Uh, so we're going to partner with the guys who did it for Disney. We're going to partner with the Russo Brothers and, and they're in the production company. We're going to spend the money on it because then we're going to greenlight the sequel and the anime spinoff and whatever might be in the game. And then we're yeah. going to have a franchise that hopefully we can sell merchandise for and target. Like that's kind of their thinking is like we have to start taking these bets on it and we're going to do it at the price that they need. So how do you do that? You have Purple Hearts. 
You yeah. say we're going to make these movies that also are like, you know, I don't think anyone on those teams, on those production teams would be happy with me saying like, you exist to make sure this other movie happens. There's, you know, they're, I'm sure I haven't seen it, but a quality movie or at least a, an entertaining movie in its own right. Like, like the, it's its own thing and it has an audience and that's phenomenal. I think the smartest thing Netflix ever did coming up outside of getting a very good into original television content was looking at the theatrical landscape around 2015. 2014 and saying there's nothing here for young women like mm-hmm. there's just nothing happening out here it's all superheroes which tend to be young men uh there are women obviously who are into them but tends to be young men and netflix went out and did tall the boys i love before and the kissing booth and all of a sudden they've got huge huge uh young adult teen audience women who don't cancel they're right. they're there they're, they're saying awesome works out super well for them and so i think netflix learns from this and goes like we can do these these what, what are called taste clusters we can do these movies for different taste clusters at an insanely cheap price that has pretty strong engagement and that really keeps the service up and running and keeps people it brings in a little bit of subscribers not as many as before but really retains them which is why we see the low churn rate and now we're going to take the big bet we can't do the big bet without the support and this is actually kind of zaslav's thing right like he wants to do the streaming but his thing is like we if we lose if we get downgraded like if our stock gets downgraded if we lose the the shareholder backing and the investment backing we can't do this like it's just we won't have the money for it. we have to be able to put money into it that means we have to make money and we make money on movies and theaters like the gray like i don't know if the gray man would have made you know 500 million dollars but it definitely would have made some kind of money mm-hmm. if it was released theatrically and so I think Netflix, when they're looking at it again, it's that it is like we want to do the big thing. We need to be able to support the big thing and not be in the red as as much as we are. So we make 10 of these five million dollar movies that do pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I the the strategy Netflix has uh, appealing to uh, younger, younger women uh, quadrant is makes tons of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, you know, going after the Oscar movies makes a ton of sense yeah. to me, right? Going after Roma or the Irishman or whatever, funding that makes sense. Everybody likes prestige. Everybody mm-hmm. wants prestige. Mm-hmm. I get that. It is, it's, but it is those gray man style movies, Red Notice, you know, et cetera, that I, I just don't quite, they, they don't jump out to me as things that make a lot of sense. I guess, unless, as you say, they are planning a big move into theatrical or, uh, merchandising, that sort of thing. You know where they do? Do you know where it does make sense? And I, I was thinking about this. And I was talking to a friend and I was like, oh, you know, we were kind of mulling over this point. And I said, there, you know, there might be something to this. One, those movies have um, global film stars. And two, those movies are super easy to watch, even if you're not, it's not in English. Yeah. Those movies are like big action thing happens global movie star that everyone knows it's like so they watch it if you're netflix and your goal is not necessarily the united states anymore it is like yeah we've we've hit we've 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 saturated but we want to get into india we want to get into south korea we want to get into these things where they love the big western film star the Mm -hmm. ryan reynolds the dwayne johnson the gal gadot you do the movies because you're like hey we think that this is going to have a stronger return for us globally and we need the movies that are big action movies that we can dub. Obviously, we're going to dub the dialogue and we can sub the dialogue, but also are like pretty easy to watch, which is what they are. They're, like, they're easy movies to watch. I wouldn't say they're memorable. This is my main issue with any type of major blockbuster Netflix's release is I can't remember any part from any of them. Um, and so and so I think with Netflix, it is like, does this travel well? And mm-hmm. cool. If it gets viewership in the US, awesome. Like that's what's our main area in terms of revenue. Like that's all, that's great. But their biggest concern now is not the US. I mean, I think it should be, but their biggest concern is like, cool, we have to continue growing in, in Latin America, in the United States, uh, Europe, Middle East, uh, Africa, and um, Asia. Like and like and that's the thing. And I think those movies and those global film stars that cost a lot of money and their brands onto themselves do that. And now I still think it's bizarre to me to not t- to take a two hundred million dollar movie and not put it in theaters. Like even especially because it's a forty five day window. Like it's yeah. not a huge window anymore. It's yeah, yeah. like you just go out the way everyone else is doing it. And the exhibitors at this point, let's be honest, right? The exhibitors at this point are like desperate enough that if you were to be like, we're gonna do 35 days, I'm sure they would come down. And they're like, we just need movies, like sure, whatever. Um, so I think for Netflix, that move will happen relative, you know, not not in the immediate future, but the next, I would say like 18 months, you know, um, two years. But I think, again, like this, the only aspect of that release strategy that makes any sense to me or, or the, the acquisition strategy for that content is that it plays well globally. Mm-hmm. And they need that more than anything on the film front. Yeah. You mentioned merchandising. Why is Netflix so bad at merchandising? I mean, I like, you know, there's there was I saw 
maybe you were writing or somebody was writing about, but Sandman, they've got yeah. this new, they've got Sandman out and Sandman is a, uh, you know, a, a toyable franchise or a plushable, fran- a funkoable franchise, something. And there's just nothing. There's nothing for it. What's, what's the deal with that? Yeah, I mean, what was with Sandman? Let's get the uh, yeah. I was just reading about this in Puck, but with the acknowledgement that it's Warner Brothers television (laughs) production, so maybe Warner Brothers retained the the ancillary rights to it when they sold it or whatever it might be. Who knows? If we take that out of the equation, because I think you're asking a very important question, like what is the overall strategy for Netflix's merchandising? You know, if they want to create a flywheel effect, like everybody's trying to follow Disney, which is funny because Disney's trying to follow Netflix. Everyone's trying to follow Disney and they're kind of saying like, we want to have this, you know, self-fulfilling uh, revenue cycle where everything helps each other out. Um, think of it like an Ouroboros uh, a head or snake. Then merchandising is a really key part of it because merchandising is not just ancillary revenue, right? It's not just like I bought a t-shirt, Netflix makes four bucks. It is, hey, I bought a t-shirt because I love Stranger Things. Like it's it's my show of adoration, right? It's like mm-hmm. what it's it, it's what it is, and that form of adoration is monetizable. This is the worst thing you can say to creatives, but you can monetize love. Like that's what they're trying to do on the on the finance side. Like they're trying to monetize that exact love. Therefore, merchandising is super important. I think the issue, and I was talking to a, a, a pal of mine who works at Disney within consumer products, and they, there's two main issues. One. They don't have an actual leader at Netflix who understands, I think, consumer products very, uh, as well as the ones, as well as the team at Disney. Two, I think they are in, they're, they're trying to kind of do everything. Like they have the Walmart deal, they have the Target deal, but also they have a shop that's like very E24. It's like, we're going to partner with like streetwear brands and like companies, and we're going to try to do limited drops. But three, and this is the biggest issue with almost all of Netflix stuff, there is no marketing for it. You got to mm-hmm. seek it out. There was, I was on the Netflix shop the other day because I was trying to see if there was Sandman stuff. There was all this really dope Stranger Things merchandise that like is not at Walmart. Like it's very specific limited edition. And no one knows about it. And I was talking to my friend Casey Moore, who runs What's on Netflix, super smart Netflix analyst type guy. And he's and he was looking at the traffic for the site. He's like, yeah, the site gets like like a thousand hits a month. Like no one is going to see what is what Netflix has. They're not marketing it. They're, Netflix cut a big part of their marketing team. So I think there's this issue of like Netflix is not in the merchandising game as much as they should be. Two, they don't really know how to lead that segment. They don't really know what they're doing in that segment, in my opinion. And then three, they're not marketing what they do have. Like they're not out here being like, we've got a bunch of Squid Game stuff. We have a bunch of of Bridgerton stuff, like whatever it might be. And so people are like, why would I buy? If we think about what A24 does, A24, I mean, it's, it's a small company, but those drops... They have the audience like they're hyper the audience yeah. is very aware of when stuff comes out and then if you think about the the best in class on the consumer product side i mean it's disney and D- disney is like what disney does extremely well is disney partners with almost everyone almost anyone can use mickey mouse at this point and they're like yeah yeah h&m wants to do it great put mickey on a shirt uh a rug company wants to put the star wars logo on the book cool I'll put it on because in their mind the more people stare at something or they wear something or they play with something the stronger the admiration is for the overall brand so they'll go watch the movies and their kids will watch the movies and so they have this kind of world where they get to dominate attention 24 7 you know it's a lot, but it but it works. It works extremely well for them. And so I think with Netflix, they're not doing that. And there doesn't seem any inclination to really do it. And even acknowledging that their method of, of approaching any type of launch for any type of product is um, uh, walk, crawl, run. They've had enough time to walk. They've had enough time to sit on it and kind of be like, okay, what's our next move here? And then let's really launch. And then we haven't really seen anything come of it. So it just feels like a mess. Like, I wish I had an answer that was like, here's yeah. exactly what's happening with their, and I was like, I, I don't, I have no idea what they're doing. And it's very odd because we live in a moment where for better or for worse, people's identity are tied to their movies and their TV shows. Like people love it. Like the like TikTok identities from teens are built on being succession stand accounts or whatever it might be. You can, you, they want to buy stuff and where are they buying it? They're going to Etsy. Like they're going to like yeah. these, right? So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I want to shift gears slightly uh, and talk about analytics because uh, oh, yeah. you what, what your you know your day job uh, uh, is is explaining to people what everyone is watching. And the thing that I hear from a lot of folks, and frankly, I say this sometimes myself, mm-hmm. that just isn't true is we don't know how many people are watching things. Right? How do we know? Explain uh, explain to me wh- how you guys figure out what is being watched by who and when. So 
for us specifically over at uh, Parrot Analytics, we look at, uh, to the, be fully transparent, we're not plugged into any of the services. Like I could not tell you how many people are watching um, uh, Gray Man. Like could not, right. could not tell you exactly that number. And I will say that none of the services, Nielsen, um, Antenna, no matter who it is, will have better information than the services, right? Like that's right. The, like no one's gonna try to sell to them as, as that option. What we look at specifically is um, a bunch of different things going from like social interaction at the very bottom of how we rank our, our, our demand exp um, expression all the way to consumption via piracy. And the reason that we rely on piracy a lot is because I was talking to a friend who works at a major streaming company in the Netherlands. Um, today I was talking to him and he's like, I can't get uh, the offer. He's like, I really want to watch the offer. And he's like, I had a, like, I had a, I just had to pirate it. Like I had, a, I had a stream it. And I said, how often do you do that? And he said, for most things, because we don't have the services, we don't get the shows. And so when we launched years ago, we launched, you know, a decade ago, our thing was half my team uh, for Paradigm Linux is New Zealand. And they weren't getting anything. They were like, we want to watch stuff and we can't get it. And we looked at the piracy numbers and they are like insanely high and it's never been easier. Like you just hit mm -hmm. play on something. So what we do is we take consumption from that um, with a bunch of other consumption metrics and then we create a demand expression. And then for that demand expression basically says like, uh, here is what is very in demand. And then we have, there's a statistics nerds will love this. There's something called R squared. And so if you might've heard it, well, people talked about the economy recently, R squared is basically like, what is the one-to-one -one relationship between this thing and this thing? Um, and so if the R squared is like 0 0.7, it's pretty high. It means that there's a pretty strong correlation between this thing happening and then this thing happening. Our correlation between demand and um, Netflix uh, subscriber growth was 0 0.99, which is like unheard of. So we basically were like, our demand for your shows is directly one-to-one uh, -one with how many subscribers you're adding or losing every single quarter. Like we can mm -hmm. see that happening. So that's what we do. We are like, and not to make this sound like a sale, we are one of many companies doing things. Antenna specifically looks at um, credit card uh, usage for activations and cancellations for streaming services to get an idea of like what people are interested in turn-wise. Nielsen obviously is plugged into viewership, but Nielsen is you know, slightly antiquated in how they're approaching it. So they're trying to figure their stuff out. All of us, I would say, are complementary to each other. You kind of take all of the data as much data. I know that you know Entertainment Strategy Guy. Like you take as much data as you can get yeah. and then try to create a picture. But I will say the one thing that I really stress when I'm thinking about how I do my job, whether it's writing for Puck or whether it's my actual day job. And then when I talk to other people, Casey, um, Brandon Katz, who's a great reporter, Frank Plato's at CNN, who's been on the podcast or whoever it might be, um, entertainment strategy guy, viewership is very important. It's consumption and consumption is the best form of engagement. It's why we weight it the highest. Like it's, it's very important. It is not the only metric that matters to streaming in the way that it mattered to broadcast and, and cable, right? Like it was on broadcast, especially it was this many people in this demographic are watching something and therefore the advertisements coming in are really great. And then we use the advertisements to get the show to season five and then we syndicate. Like there was a whole strategy that they did and it was reliant on advertising. Nielsen was created to help advertisers. Like it was a, it was mm -hmm. a big part of it. With streaming, the question of a show, I think it's more like, like Friends, right? The question of a show with Friends, Friends is not necessarily going to pop into a top 20 chart on Nielsen every single week because there's just not that many people watching Friends over and over again. But it is the reason, as a, we look at something called like a decay rate. Decay rate just means like how um, high is the demand when there's no new season of a show. And Friends has an extremely low decay rate, which means people are keeping HBO Max because they have Friends. You know, mm -hmm. people are keeping Netflix because they have a new girl or like whatever it might be. They go back and they watch the show. And as long as that show is there, then they'll pay for the service. That is kind of the biggest value proposition of that of that title. We talk about the, the value of content. Like that is what that title is, is really valuable for. And so I think when we look at viewership, especially for new titles, where the question is like, okay, cool, this this we show, I don't know, 10 million people watch the show in the first 20 days, in the first 30 days. The questions Netflix asks, if you ever get to see a Netflix board for how they how they look at their shows data-wise, they have a bunch of different charts. And then at the very top, they have an efficiency rating and then a value for the show that they assign to it. And then the charts below all create the efficiency rating. The efficiency rating is based on how many people watched 70% of the show, 100% of the show, how many people that were then watched another Netflix original, how many people then watched a licensed title that Netflix had the rights, has the rights to, how many, what was the sentiment of the people who watched it, literally the like, dislike, whatever it might be, what was the sentiment of it? And it creates an efficiency rating. And if the efficiency rating needs to be pretty high for Netflix to consider it a success, right? And so they look at this on a per total basis and then it creates the value. And I think that's a big part of how streaming is, which is, 
okay, cool. People came in for this title. That's awesome. Are they a one point purchase? Are they going to cancel it in two weeks because they're over it? Or did this title bring people in and then they were watching Friends and then they were watching uh, something else? Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Like how do how do we use all that? So I think that's what I spend a lot of my time doing is talking to executives on the OTT side about that. And then producers on the creative side about how they should be going into these negotiations for renewals or whatever it might be and and what they should be armed with data wise. I always say, I tell them like, you can't just ask for viewership. You might get something, they might give you a number, but that's not what the only thing that matters to them. Like you could have a huge show if if 90% of the people who you brought in churned, they canceled the week later, that show's not gonna get renewed. Like it's just, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't make sense for the, the OTT platform. But your show came in, didn't have huge numbers, but it's seeing incremental growth. It's holding pretty steady at a solid rate for 120 days. That show's going to get renewed. Like it's just what's going to happen. And so understanding yeah. those metrics, I think, is so important on, on both sides. So when Ben Stiller complains about not getting any numbers for severance, mm-hmm. he's, he's looking at the wrong thing. That's, unless he's specifically looking for, you know, how many how many more people went to go watch you know C afterwards? <laughs> and, and I think and it's like I never want to play down like viewership because it's it's still a huge part of what we look at too. We call it it's consumption for us. You know how many people are actually watch because people actually sitting down to watch something for ten episodes or whatever it might be like that's a huge thing. Like, it's like cool. This is actual intent um, to, to watch and it, and it is watch versus like this may show intent to watch but they don't watch someone who retweets a trailer or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the first question should always be how many people watch? Absolutely. But there should be other questions that are like, okay, well, and this is what will come up really in all the new backend deals as new contracts are being created. It will be like, well, how many subscribers did I help you retain as a whole in your quarter with this title? How many subscribers did I, oh, another big one. How many subscribers did I bring in from an audience demographic that you are currently trying to penetrate? Like mm-hmm. what, like you, um, every Disney plus doesn't have a strong above 40 crowd. That should be obvious to anyone. Disney plus wants to be a huge scalable service. You know, you have to appeal to about 40. It's like your Hamilton moment. You really need to appeal to your about 40. Uh, cool. So if your show that is, I don't know, a, a procedural brings in that audience, they bring in, um, uh, dads and moms who are at home watching something together or, on a Wednesday night, that title is going to be more valuable in many ways than another Star Wars title. It's not going to bring in huge subscribers. It's going to retain them, but it's not going to do huge. If your show brings in a bunch and keeps them and it's a different demographic, which is what Hamilton did, the value of that title increases. And if you're a producer, if you're Ben Stiller, you want to know that. You want to know like, cool, I'm actually doing a, a lot for you. You know, you're Jason Sudeikis. How much is Ted Lasso doing for the sentiment of this platform? How much is Ted Lasso actually making people think, oh, Apple TV Plus may be valuable to me and therefore I will sign up for it. So these are questions you'd have to ask with broadcasting where the only question was how many people are watching it in what demographic are they watching it? Great, like like cool, like there's an audience. I'm really excited. The advertisers are really happy, like that's awesome. On streaming, there's a much larger picture to what is considered success. But the streamers aren't going to want to give any of that up. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to I talk to folks uh, mostly with writers who are terrified of a new strike. Yeah. They're basically the Writers Guild is like, we're probably going to strike because yeah. we want more. We want more money from the streamers. Totally reasonable. You know, writers are getting shafted in all sorts of ways with small writers rooms, whatever. Um, but the the uh, but like what they actually want are good analytics and that's like the thing that the streamers will fight to the death to never give anyone yeah that's i mean that's exactly right and until there there's one or two things that will force their hand one not like a law per se but like literally some kind of ruling that is like you Mm -hmm. must have you have to disclose this for equal um uh, for unfair grounds like you have to be a thing you have to do right like it, it, you know, it's, I was thinking I was going to compare it to um, box office results, but studios were the ones actually who were reporting those back in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Like that was a different yeah. situation. Um, or two, to your to your point, it's the guilds who will who will try to the unions who will try to force their hand. The only issue with the unions, which I'm sure a lot of the writers you speak to are, are very aware of, like I'm very pro union. I worked in the unionized environment for a long, long time. Is that unions take a long time to get things done. It's it's a long process, it's back and forth. And in that time, a lot of people aren't working, a lot of people, it, it becomes a whole situation. And if you're a company like Netflix, you don't necessarily, there are other ways you make shows, right? Like you find a way around, Not it does, it's not a great way to do it, but you find a way to kind of continue making content and it's not, it's not super great, but that's what happens. And so I think it needs a combination of both. I do think we are gonna see a strike. 
if it's not the WGA, it'll be some other kind. I think, you know, I also think SAG-AFTRA should come out and be like, we want to, like, we, we want to be aware of what this is. The PGA should come out, right? Think of the producers. Producers are the ones who are trying to argue and like be in those negotiation rooms. I think they should come out and say it. It's your exact point, Sunny. If you are, you know, I think I was tweeting this about the Ben Stiller thing. If you are in a position of power, why would you give anyone any room or, or any added leverage in the bargaining t- on the bargaining table, right? Like you just wouldn't. It doesn't make any sense. And you can say that you're pro talent as a company. You can say that you're whatever. The only duty these the public companies have is a fiduciary duty. They only have to make money. They just have to continue making money and they have to continue increasing their profit margins and cutting costs. And so part of the way to do that is by in being in negotiation rooms and not giving out too much data. Because if you give out too much data, then people get to come back and say, like, we want to negotiate for a better rate, for a better pay. Now, you get some networks who are notoriously very good for this, right? Like HBO. HBO is very, very good. They don't give out money numbers, but they tend to be fair with the negotiations. They tend to whatever. I'm not trying to say that any any company is not fair, but I do think you'll start to see a lot more like what we saw with Disney and Scarlett Johansson where there was a lawsuit and she was like, you know, again, like what is my back end profit on this movie that now helps you bring in a bunch of people to Disney Plus, whatever it might be. That is where you'll start to see like, like the con- the idea of like of valuing content, the idea of being able to give someone a number and be like, hey, like here's what your show does in this demographic and uh, and here's the, the the monetary value of it and here's why we think or who we might pair it, Nielsen, Atena, whoever it might be. Here's why we might think that you your show is really strong on on apple and here's what apple really needs uh to give you because of whatever and on the other front you give the same kind of report or whatever it might be or, or and they're doing them internally already at the companies but you have your company like apple you're looking at the value of this title and you're looking at how it compares to the value of other titles and you're trying to keep that close to your chest right and i think what you'll see on the valuation side from from the ott players is they'll start to kind of look at what the value of that title is to them versus what it can be sold at. So manifest, right? Manifest mm-hmm. peak mm-hmm. Li- NBC gave it to Netflix for a pretty cheap price. Didn't think anything of it. Wasn't doing super well on NBC. Didn't think it was going to do super well on Peacock. Goes to Netflix, boom, right? Like huge, huge show. All of a sudden, Netflix is like, we're going to get a fourth season out of it. We're going to end it. It's, it's great for us. If you're NBC, if you kind of knew what the value of that title would be on a Netflix before you sold it, you can have a higher negotiation fee. So we're going to, in the economics of how business is done in Hollywood is, is going to change. I mean, not not hugely, but the way we kind of value stuff is going to start to change pretty rapidly. And like, that's one, I mean, exciting for someone in my position who just likes numbers and data and likes to talk about these things. But it does mean that the producers and the creatives need to arm themselves with something that gets them into those rooms and gives them a, a fair ground to stand on, in, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, that's great. I, uh, I this is everything. I, I actually still have like five questions left, but we're we're we're, we're coming up, coming up on an hour here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just uh, close with my standard closing question. I, what should I have asked? What did I what did I fail to ask? What do you think people should know about what's going on in the world of uh, of entertainment and streaming and analytics and all that stuff? There's something that is affecting three of the biggest players in coming into streaming. That is going to become a, a huge topic of conversation and it's going to change and for for our listeners on, on who are listening to this who might not necessarily care about the financial side of it who don't care about a term like ebitda um it is going to impact kind of content investment and therefore trickle down to what you're seeing the companies it doesn't affect necessarily netflix apple amazon doesn't affect these companies warner brothers discovery paramount nbc universal the, they had something, so there's something called profit margins. The profit margins they made on cable and on broadcast were insanely high. Like, like they're and like insanely high. That's why they became as as lucrative as they became. Discovery is another one. Insanely high uh, margins on it. They're looking at a future where those profit margins are like half of what they were doing, and they are trying to find a way to make peace with that future while also moving into the future and trying to figure out how we get close to it. That's a really daunting thing for a cable company to try and figure out. Well, well, they're still losing money on streaming and they're going to be losing money on streaming for, for a little bit of time. So the thing I always recommend, and I know it, it sounds a little bit like homework, but if if you if you pay attention to earnings and you pay attention to, to the right questions that the analysts are going to ask, which are all about profit margin, it's all about kind of the, the health of what they're making versus what they're spending, the, the, the cost of a customer acquisition. You'll get an idea of how that might play out in terms of content, where they're going to invest in certain content. And so, I always recommend as someone who loves data, but also someone who was like a consumer person first. Like I, like I, I consume 
TV and film. Like I came up over at Polygon, like reviewing movies and TV shows and like writing about this stuff. The more you kind of know about that, the more you'll be you'll be able to understand why things are about to happen the way that they are about to happen. And um, it's just it's just advice I give to to anyone is is be I know I've been thinking about it because in the last earnings call at WBD there were a lot of people who didn't who didn't understand finance which is fine like not like more less people should understand finance in my opinion but <laughs> but it was a, a rumor I was like what what does this matter how does this affect it and the more that you kind of spend time with that like reading a CNBC article on it whatever it might be the better idea you'll have of what is going to happen and why it's going to happen and how that how and and, and how Disney Paramount, NBC Universal, and Warner Brothers Discovery are going to have to change things um, at a very scary point for the executives uh, and for for investors who are used to like 40, 50 years of unprecedented level of just success in uh, and 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 economic success in in uh, entertainment and are now going into a very daunting, almost irrevocable moment. So that's what that's what I would say. Well, I just to just to follow up on this briefly, I mean, you excluded ex- specifically Apple, Amazon and uh, Netflix yeah. from this. But it, it, let's set Netflix aside because it has its own thing. I mean, Amazon and Apple are basically playing with a cheat code Yeah, because they they I, I like what is what is their I they they don't have to make money on these services. They are all just adjuncts of like the larger iPhone production or, you know, shipping movies to people, you know, business. Right. Like what? What, how are how are the other how are the other streaming services the other networks supposed to compete with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, good luck. Uh, it's, it's kind of <laughs> my thing, but I think you know, with Amazon, and we can look at the reasons for why these exist, right? Tim Cook gets a very scary presentation from a McKinsey consultant in 2014, 2015 that says your hardware is slowing down. Oh, like your Apple, it's terrifying. Your hardware company. So Tim Cook and his CFO, Luke Maestri, they get together and they say, well, services, recurring revenue. They're looking at Netflix. They're looking at Xbox Live. They're looking at these things and they're like, these, you know, Xbox is a hardware company that now is a very successful software company, PlayStation Now. They're looking at this and they're saying, we can do that. We have hardware. We have a built-in thing. So they launch kind of all these different Apple services, right? Music, news, fitness, and then TV Plus. And the idea is to lock someone into an Apple One bundle, which then locks them into upgrading their hardware. Like that's the idea is the value perception of that bundle. Amazon really, you know, I've been thinking about this really interesting. We think of Amazon Prime video as an add-on to Amazon Prime in the United States because we as a country and, and in Canada and parts of Western Europe, we as a country um, spend a lot of our time uh, shopping online. Like e-commerce is actually a huge business in the United States. And it's not a huge business in other parts of the world where shipping is delayed, where uh, it, they just don't have that type of infrastructure, whatever it might be. In other parts of the world, Prime Video is the thing you you sign in, you you sign up for. It's the number one thing, and then you might buy stuff on Prime. But Prime Video is like the thing that you're doing. So for Amazon, what they're trying to do is really just create added value proposition. I mean, their number one leadership principle is upset, uh, customer obsession. Their whole thing is like, if we have something that people really love on the TV side, on uh, the gaming side with Twitch, on the music side, whatever it might be, then maybe they spend on, on the Prime side. But as long as they're paying, we can continue throwing stuff at them that they're then engaging with that either helps our advertising business or helps our subscriber business. To your exact question, I wanted to set that up because to your exact question, how do you compete with that? They're trillion dollar companies. They have more money than God three times over. Like they they can play in that game for as long as they want to play. And I think with Amazon, they're, they're, re- they're restructuring their strategy a little bit. So I'm excited to see what Prime Video becomes. And I would say like a year, year and a half, because even a year and a half to three years, because I think they're in a new development cycle. I think they're trying some new things. Apple very clearly would like to take from HBO like very, very clearly would be like, hey, we're, we're doing this. We don't necessarily need a library. We don't even need to be profitable. Like <laughs> we're going to sell 40 million iPhones in, in a month. Like it's it's fine, but they want to be, you know, the brand. They want to be the prestigious mm-hmm. thing that Apple is. They want to have the creative clout. They want to be at the at the Oscars and at the Emmys. And and they do also want to be profitable. Like they, they do want to run a strong business. But the way that they want to do that is to kind of replicate HBO in the early, uh, sorry, late 90s, early 2000s, right? They want that slate of like Sopranos, Wire, Awe, Sex and the City. And so they're willing to kind of spend on it to really make that happen. Um, and I think they're looking 
at a company like Warner Brothers Discovery and saying like, they're going to have to take all these cost measurements. They're trying to deal with their margins that are like coming down and structuring all that. They're going to have to pass on some projects. And we want to be the company that brings it up. The more that you have stronger sentiment for a platform, the more that the value perception rises with each title, the more subscribers you get and the less churn you have. And they need that. Like they need just the good stuff month after month after month. And I think that's kind of where they're sitting and they're waiting and they're actively pursuing um, those those speedways. But yeah, if you're any other company, good luck. If they really want to play in that field, like they will dominate. Yeah. Uh, Julia, thank you very much. I, this is a fantastic show. Uh, everybody should uh, follow you on Twitter uh, at, at Julia Loudmouth. Yeah. Wait, at Loudmouth Julia. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, backwards. Um, uh, and uh, and I always talk about how great uh, Puck is. My it's you know Puck and the Ankler and you know uh, those are the the two kind of com- combo entertainment packages I read. So uh, as always recommended. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.